I'm Chuck Reese, editor of SalvationSouth.com and host of the Salvation South podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting. Each week, we bring you a new short commentary on the culture and values of the American South, and they're available worldwide anytime on our podcast feed. On the first of this special two-part episode, we look back on our most popular commentaries aired by GPB in 2023. At the beginning of this year, artificial intelligence and the worry over how students might use it to cheat on their assignments had only recently become a dominant topic in the news. In this commentary, I spent some time playing with ChatGPT, and I discovered that when it comes to forming a truly insightful understanding of Southern culture and history, our teachers didn't have much to worry about. School teachers these days seem awfully worried about an online tool called ChatGPT. It uses artificial intelligence to write things. You can, for example, tell it to write 250 words about Faulkner's Absalom Absalom or whatever the subject is, and it will come back with a reasonably smart, well-written response. Teachers, of course, don't want their students to skip the hard work of actually reading and understanding. So, since it's my job to think and write and talk about the South, I started worrying that ChatGPT could replace me. So I decided to try it out. First, I asked it to write a 400-word commentary about the culture of the American South. The first thing ChatGPT wrote back was, the American South is a region steeped in history and cultural traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation. Hmm. Isn't every region everywhere steeped in history and cultural traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation? I mean, ChatGPT did go on to call attention to Southern music, food, literature, and religious traditions, but it told me nothing I didn't already know. So I tried another approach. I asked ChatGPT to write 400 words about, and I quote, the most interesting place in the South. It began with this sentence. The most interesting place in the American South is undoubtedly New Orleans, Louisiana. Now, I love New Orleans, and the place does indeed have a uniquely interesting culture. But so does Savannah, and Atlanta, and Nashville, etc. Now, I was getting accurate facts and well-written sentences, but no real insight whatsoever, so I went back to the well. I asked ChatGPT to write 200 words about Mama's Biscuits. I thought, I'm going to stump this thing. But sure enough, I got a reply that began with, Mama's Biscuits are a beloved staple in Southern cuisine and a symbol of homestyle cooking. It went on to invoke their, and I quote, warm and comforting aroma, and the fact that I could eat them, and I quote, with butter, jam, honey, or gravy. Evidently, Chat GPT doesn't know about sorghum syrup. The bottom line was it was more or less accurate, but only about biscuits in the abstract. So I made a slightly different request. Write 200 words about my mama's biscuits. And Chat GPT replied, I'm sorry, but as an AI language model, I don't have any personal experiences or specific information about your mama's biscuits. 
That's right. Every one of us is unique. Every one of us has a different experience of our own mama's biscuits. So maybe our teachers don't have quite so much to worry about after all. Come visit us at Salvation South. That commentary originally aired on GPB Radio in February of 2023. This next commentary has proven to be one of our most popular ones to date. After diving into the history of blues music, arguably the greatest Southern contribution to American culture, I'd been thinking about music's power to soothe even the deepest pain we feel and reflecting on the price paid by a man named Robert Johnson. One of the great legends of Southern culture is the story of a blues man named Robert Johnson. Johnson died in 1938 when he was only 27 years old. And as the mythology goes, a couple of years before he was murdered, Johnson went to the crossroads of U.S. Highway 61 and 49 in Clarksdale, Mississippi, where he sold his soul to the devil in exchange for otherworldly guitar playing skills. Now, Johnson recorded only a few of his own songs. One was called Crossroad Blues. In it, he sang, I went to the crossroads, fell down on my knees, asked the Lord above, have mercy, save poor Bob, if you please. Another tune Johnson recorded was called Me and the Devil Blues, in which poor Bob sings, Early this morning, when you knocked upon my door, I said, Hello, Satan. I believe it's time to go. Me and the Devil was walking side by side. Yikes. Scary stuff. But what's underneath it? Here was a haunted man whose pain left him feeling like he was walking side by side with the devil, like he had to ask the Lord above to save him. Now, Johnson's music, the blues, is undoubtedly part of the foundation of the South's musical culture, and it arose from the trials of black Americans who lived under Jim Crow and his threats of violence and death. Now, what salve could there be for such pain and oppression? Well... Blues players knew better than anybody that music has the magical power to soothe even the most troubled of souls. And it's hard to find words that are strong enough to express that power. And I think maybe the closest any writer ever came to getting it right was when the late Toni Morrison wrote her first novel, The Bluest Eye. Let me read a passage for you. If my mother was in a singing mood, it wasn't so bad. She would sing about hard times and bad times and somebody done gone and left me times. Misery colored by the greens and blues in my mother's voice took all the grief out of the words and left me with a conviction that pain was not only endurable, it was sweet. Turning the pain of life into something endurable and maybe even sweet is the essence of the blues. If you have not explored that earliest blues music, you should make time to listen to Robert Johnson or 
Charlie Patton or Georgia's own Blind Willie McTell. We've currently got a deep story about Robert Johnson at SalvationSouth.com, and we'd love for you to come by and read Robert Johnson and the Soothing Power of the Blues from April 2023. We're looking back on some of our favorite Salvation South commentaries aired by Georgia Public Broadcasting this year. Earlier in the year, the Atlanta History Center released a documentary about the history of Atlanta's Stone Mountain and the memorial to the Confederacy that is carved into its flank. That film prompted many Georgians to re-examine what they thought they knew about that carving and just how it got there. I wish I had a dollar for every time this has happened to me. I drive by a spot in my neighborhood and I see new construction going up and I cannot for the life of me remember what was there before. We see things every day, but we don't always see them. We don't think about what purpose they serve, who they belong to, or why they were put there in the first place. And this happened to my writer friend Doug Cumming after he retired from his university teaching job in Virginia and moved home to Decatur. He drove into town from the east on Highway 78, which takes you right by Stone Mountain. It looms high on the horizon. And Doug remembered how he and his friends thought about Stone Mountain when they were growing up. This is how he described it in a story he wrote for Salvation South, the online magazine I edit. To us who grew up in the Atlanta of the 1960s, Stone Mountain was a shabby theme park with a train, picnic tables, and a gondola ride. It was just a crowded Georgia State Park the world's largest granite outcropping with a grandiose chiseling project somewhere on its flanks. That chiseling project, of course, is the world's largest memorial to the Confederacy, the army of southern states that rebelled against the U.S. government in pursuit of a central aim to continue the horrible institution of slavery. Doug wanted to learn the genuine history of how and why that memorial was carved into the granite. He didn't know it, but the Atlanta History Center was already hard at work on a half-hour documentary film about that story, and Doug went to its debut in January. Now, many Georgians have gone most of their lives thinking that that carving has just always been on Stone Mountain, And the carving project did begin a hundred years ago, a private endeavor funded by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the same ladies who persistently perpetuated the myth of the lost cause, the false version of history that claims the Confederates fought for causes more noble than the maintenance of slavery. But the daughters ran out of money and only an unfinished carving of Robert E. Lee was left. The project was not resurrected until the late 1950s at the command of our state government, led by a segregationist governor, Marvin Griffin, and legislators who were incensed when the U.S. Supreme Court declared that segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. I don't have enough time with you today to walk through the complete history 
but I encourage you to watch the Atlanta History Center's documentary and to read stories like Doug Cummings that reveal the truth about Stone Mountain. We might all be familiar with that giant rock and the carving on its side, but too few of us have actually seen it and learned what it means and why it was put there. Come visit us at SalvationSouth.com. That commentary originally aired back in March. There's a good argument to be made that the greatest gift we can pass on to anyone we love is a book. Books feed our spirits, and they take us to places we could never go on our own, and they bring us wisdom that stays with us for a lifetime. The next commentary from January is about an author named Silas House and his book Lark Ascending, which I believe was the greatest Southern novel of 2022. We will start our lesson today in the second chapter of the late, great Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. In that chapter, Lee's narrator, a small-town tomboy named Scout, says this, Until I feared I would lose it, I never loved to read. One does not love breathing. Scout is telling us that reading is to our minds, hearts, and souls what oxygen is to our bodies. It's not just critical, it's essential. So maybe the greatest thing people can do to feed the minds, hearts, and souls of those we love is to give them a book. So today, that's what I'm going to do for all y'all. I want you to read a book called Lark Ascending. It's by a Kentucky writer named Silas House. Silas has been publishing novels for two decades now, but Lark, the book he released in 2022, was, in my view, the greatest Southern novel of the year. In these times, we all live with fear. Our politics have become so divisive, and we worry about whether our nation will hold together in the future. The changing climate threatens the homes and livelihoods of many Americans. And in Lark Ascending, Silas House writes directly into that fear. And somehow he pulls off a huge magical trick. Although he sets the book in a dystopian future in which wildfires have destroyed most of America's land and evil forces rule the country, Courageous resistors, people whose hearts overflow with love and hope, propel the story. A young man named Lark and his family hear of a sanctuary in rural Ireland and board a ship headed there. But by the time they reach Ireland, only the young man remains alive, and the rest of the book follows his search for sanctuary. Along the way, Lark meets a dog, stray beagle who accompanies him on his journey and as they travel we feel lark's emotions burning inside him his anger at what's happened to the world his desire to find a new home and he never gives up the hope that he can now i will not tell you whether lark and his beagle seamus find their desired sanctuary no spoilers for me We all have struggles like Lark as we try to find our places on this earth. We all journey through years and thousands of miles trying to find the places that we call home. 
And what Lark Ascending tells us ultimately is that the journey and the people we travel with actually matter more. I've burned, and that's what I wish for all of you, young Lark says in the book, to burn with anger, desire, joy, sorrow, all of it. And I hope you enjoy this book, and I hope you burn in all the very best ways. Come read more about Silas House at SalvationSouth.com. Silas House and the Power of the Great Southern Novel from January 2023. We've come to our final commentary of the special episode, and it's a story about when I first moved to New York City as a young journalist. Back then, as a Southerner, I felt like I had something to prove, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Now, in this commentary, I report on what I learned from one audacious experiment I conducted with my New York co-workers. After I graduated from the University of Georgia, I took a job in New York City. My journalistic colleagues there heard my accent and started asking me the oddest questions like, are your parents moonshiners? Well, no. And anyway, I explained, I grew up in Ellijay, the apple capital of Georgia. And the folks who made illegal whiskey there didn't make corn liquor, they made apple brandy. And they did not believe me. So the next time I went home, a family member who shall not be named scored me a pint of Gilmer County apple brandy, and I returned to Manhattan with it in my backpack. Before we all left work on the Friday after I got back, I pulled out that pint and asked my editors, my bosses, to gather around the water cooler. They pulled little conical paper cups from the dispenser, and I poured shots of brandy until the pint was empty. If you've never had homemade apple brandy, let's just say it tastes and smells wonderful until it gets about halfway down your esophagus at which point it feels like an entire orchard has caught fire inside your chest. My editors were impressed. The following Monday morning, I got to the office early, and my big boss, the editor-in-chief, was already at his desk in the front of the newsroom. Mr. Reese, he said, get over here. I did as he asked. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what was in that stuff you gave me on Friday, But at 11 o'clock that night, I found myself in a rental car in the Bronx, and I had no idea how I got there. I definitely felt like I had proved something to them. But in retrospect, I think I'd proved something to myself. That the South had been imprinted on me so deeply, I could never truly escape it. Not long ago, Salvation South, the magazine I edit, published an essay by a young woman named Ellen Corey from Watkinsville, who had just finished her freshman year at New York University in Manhattan. I so related to what she wrote, particularly this paragraph. I could easily confirm every belief New Yorkers have about the podunk, simple-minded American South. Yes, I have known my fair share of -of out-of-season camo apparel, and blatantly racist ignoramuses. But I've also felt magnolia trees mothering me during my drives past places 
where old couples sell me peaches for a discounted price because they thought my dad was sweet in high school. For centuries, young Southerners have ventured northward looking to prove something to themselves. And we all wind up learning how deeply our home had imprinted us. To the rest of the world, Southerners may be hard to understand, and I guess it's enough that some of us at least understand ourselves. You can read Ellen's essay for us at SalvationSouth.com. That concludes the first part of our year-end Salvation South commentary retrospective. Please be sure to subscribe to Salvation South on your favorite podcast platform so you can hear part two. And keep an eye out for Salvation South Deluxe, a series of longer episodes that tell deeper stories of the Southern experience through the unique voices of the people who live it. Listen and subscribe to Salvation South at gpb.org slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, do come visit us at salvationsouth.com. I'm Chuck Reese. Thanks for listening. <music>